Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Wharton Fintech podcast. I am your host, Daniel McCauley, and I am joined today by my fellow classmate, Sarah Millar. Sarah and I are going to be talking about the social impact side of fintech and her experience working in fintech in Latin America. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks, Dan. Um, Happy to be here. Good. Why don't you start us off by giving us a couple of minutes on your background, what you were doing before school, where you spent your summer, uh, and where your career focus is now? Sure. So uh, before school, I was in New York for three years. Um, I was writing a market commentary for a broker dealer in the city, uh, sort of taking an alternative view on the indicators that led the market. Um, very quickly into that job, realized that I was sort of lacking the social responsibility or community service element um, that I that I really wanted, and decided to go back to school to pursue a career in social impact. So I guess a year and a half ago now, I joined uh, Wharton Slaughter program. I'm in the Latin America Spanish track. And for those of our listeners that don't go to Wharton, what is the Lauder oh, program? So, um, the Lauder program is a dual degree. Um, it's the MBA and then a master's in international studies. So I take uh, Spanish and School of Arts and Sciences classes on top of the traditional MBA. Um, and I spent two months in Peru and Colombia before, uh, before coming to Wharton for the MA portion of the degree. Um, so in that vein, con continued with the, the Latin America social impact focus. Um, while I was at Wharton for the first year, I got really interested in fintech, decided I wanted to pursue something, if not in that space, something very closely related. So this summer, I spent four weeks working at a very high growth e-commerce startup in Mexico, and then transitioned onto the funding side with an impact investor in Mexico City. Um, where I looked specifically at opportunities in e-commerce, transportation, and fintech. Um, so happy to talk about that later on. I'm um, sure we'll get to it. Uh, after school, TBD, but hopefully <laughs> at a high-growth fintech startup or at an impact investor looking to make investments in fintech or in Latin America generally. Okay, very cool. You've got a pretty cool focus. Yeah, it might be a little too specific. I might have to open up the, the boundaries there. But um, there's a lot of opportunities in fintech, so it's sort of just learning both how to open up and narrow it down as to what exactly I want there. Yeah, you got to go deep and abroad, I suppose. Yeah. So let's jump into the social impact part of this conversation. Sure. Um, you know, why are you specifically interested in social impact? Um, and I guess in the context of our conversation at the intersection uh, of fintech? Yeah, so um, at a very basic level, I'm interested in social impact just because I, I like to give back. I want that to be sort of part of my uh, professional as well as personal life. Um, fintech to me is just inherently social impact, especially in the emerging markets or, or the developing world. This is really a way that people who have never had any contact with financial institutions or with uh, saving money, anything um, in that realm, this really allows them to become part of the system. Um, and I think one of the stats that I pulled up is that 
um, since sort of the launch of fintech, I would say probably back in 2010-ish, when this really became something that people started looking at and investing in, the number of banked, the the banked population in the world has gone from 51% to 62%. In five years. In five years. And that's not, in my opinion, that's not happening because banks are trying to get more in touch with these consumers. It's because there have been innovations that have brought them on board um, that that allow them to be this uh, traditional consumer in, in the financial world. Let's, uh, so uh, Steve uh, Wiener and I were at the Cybos conference in Singapore last week that I was telling you about before we got on air here. And one of the one of the topics of conversation was about how uh, a well-functioning financial system sort of amplifies everything else in the economy. And so it's great to provide healthcare. It's great to provide education to people in these countries that don't have it. But until you have financial systems that include everybody, those efforts are never going to kickstart something that's self-sustaining. I think also I would want to mention that for something like fintech, when you invest in education or when you invest in, um, I don't know, more affordable homes for these people, the impact, you have you have to sort of wait several years before you see the impact of that. Whereas when you're providing them with a the new technology to manage their finances, the, the impact is absolutely immediate. Like you see how many people are signing on board. You, especially with things like mobile payment systems, those have just exponentially grown. Um, so it's sort of the you see the impact right away with fintech, whereas in other uh, portions of impact investment, you really have to wait to see the social and financial returns. So, so speaking of seeing the impact right away, can you talk about um, some of the specifics of your summer experience? Sure. Kind of companies, either the company you were working at, some of the companies you were looking at when you were on the investing side. What kind of things were they doing? What kind of impact did you actually see? Mm-hmm. on the ground. Yeah, so I'll start very generally, and this is probably applicable to most markets, even outside of Latin America. Um, mobile payment systems have been sort of the tried and true uh, method of fintech sort of engaging with consumers in the in the emerging world. Um, that said, because they are sort of tried and true, new players in that space are not as frequently seen. Um, so I, I'm all for mobile payment systems. Um, what we saw a lot in Latin America was being able to not just sort of bank on your phone. So the idea of having direct deposit into your account uh, that you would then be able to spend on your phone. You can send people money sort of it, like Venmo, but much more uh, not quite as sophisticated, I would say. Um, one of the biggest trends that we saw down there were companies trying to utilize um, the, the phone credit. So most people in the emerging world, at least in Latin America, are buying minutes at the store. They go to your 7-Eleven or down there it's Oxo and you buy 20 minutes of credit on your phone. And being there are a lot of companies trying to sort of use that credit for something other than minutes. So using, using the minutes as a store of value. Exactly. Exactly. They're performing and, one of the functions of currency. Sure. And uh, the other thing that we looked a lot at, and this is becoming um, not so much at the st- at the uh, for the individual, more for what they call pymes, which is small medium enterprises. Um, this idea of uh, mobile point of sale. So there are, I think the the number is 
something like 2% of transactions that are made in, at least in Mexico, are made at sort of formal institutions. The rest of them are made at mom and pop stores, essentially. Right, right. And so getting them these mobile point of sale systems is suddenly bringing in 98% of the transactions that happen in a country of 120 million people. And I'm guessing the traditional credit card payment rails are too expensive for those types of transactions yeah, in those and businesses? They're just, you have to also take into account the leapfrog effect that happens in these emerging markets. So a lot of people go from being not banked at all to all of a sudden using Apple Pay at these right. mom and pop stores. Like they, they don't even think about necessarily getting a credit card or a debit card. It's immediate to this store of value sort of on the cloud. Mm-hmm. And then they are able to go into these stores that have this mobile point of sale system, which at this point is more geared towards credit and debit cards. But I see it um, very much going to just this sort of tap your phone and pay. So do you think that that sort of discontinuity in the way people are paying creates cultural challenges? You know, oh, if you're, for sure. If you're going from a cash-based society to an Apple-pay society, right. are people going to be left behind because they have human biases towards the technology? Yeah, so I would say the biggest biases that you run into um, in Latin America, and this, this is probably also um, can be extrapolated to other developing markets, people don't trust the financial system. And that can extend to any thing that has any technology or um, any person that comes and tries to touch your money is automatically like this person is no good. They're trying to steal from me. And so traditionally the banks are seen as like, I absolutely will not go and have a bank account because they're just trying to take money from me. What fintech really does for these people is it offers them a way to see um, where their money is going, sort of assures them that the money is staying in their account. Um, it, it basically convinces these people, you know, this company, this fintech company doesn't have ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to generate reserves for ourselves. We're not lending your money to other people. This is your money. It's going to stay where it is and you can use it whenever you want. So that trust element of knowing where your money is at all times and knowing that you can use it for anything is one of the bigger hurdles that fintech companies are facing, um, much less so than than sort of traditional banks, but it's getting there. You can see a lot of people are adopting this very quickly, potentially because it's the only alternative to a bank and it's sort of the lesser of two evils. So it's funny that you talk about people having this trust because, and to sort of paraphrase you, there's more transparency, right? The technology is giving yep. the consumer the ability to to uh, manage their finances rather than relying on um, professionals, quote unquote, right. at a bank, right? right? And that's very similar to what we're seeing going on in developed markets, right? right? If you look at um, automated investing services that cut the man out of the loop, so to speak, with regard to um, you know, portfolio management, you're letting the consumer have control. You're showing them exactly what's going on in their portfolio through an app that they can access anytime. And mm-hmm. they have a lot more transparency in what they're doing. And therefore, you know, millennials particularly are adopting those technologies. And it sounds like the narrative is sort of analogous or parallel in Incredibly developing similar. markets. People are kind of people, and we're going to exhibit the same biases right. whether we live in Mexico or Philadelphia. Right. The, vi- the other big thing I would say for a lot of developing markets is um, having a lower threshold for having some sort of bank account or some, some account of whatever kind. Um, a lot of bank accounts, even here in the U.S., you have to say, you know, 
I'm going to have a minimum, uh, a minimum of $100 in my bank account at all times. Well, when your income is maximum $2,000 a year, that's not possible. Right. And so a lot of these fintech companies are sort of working around regulations and working around sort of the, the cultural realities that are there to say, we have to provide something that suits your needs. Sort of the typical bank, both in the U.S. and in Latin America, is very geared towards a sort of upper middle class uh, consumer. And so they're going in and they're saying, you don't have to have a minimum balance. You can't go negative, but put in two cents if you want to. That's your money. You do what you want with it. And that is what is really convincing these people to, to sort of join on and jump on the bandwagon because they're saying like, okay, this person understands me and they are going to take my money where it needs to go. So it's, it's interesting here because the technology is um, enabling something here that a traditional bank can't do right? Right. because of the cost structure. Right. You know, a bank has to have a minimum account size because it's not profitable otherwise. Exactly. Um, so, I, so there's definitely uh, there's definitely a part to play or a role to play for the technology, but most of what you're telling me here has to do with people yeah, and our biases and uh, the way we interact with the technology. And it kind of seems that... Well, the technology has to suit the consumer. Right. And, and so you're, what you're seeing in fintech in the U.S. being a little bit more about money management and sort of uh, making it easier for somebody to see where their money is going, to uh, to know where they're investing, et cetera, it goes down to the most basic element in Latin America or in developing markets. It's sort of like, okay, where can I put my money? And that's a question that most people can't answer. It's not, oh, well, am I generating as many returns as I could? Because there's no concept of return on, on your deposits. Right. So it's, just, it's getting back to that sort of fundamental element of, I can store my money somewhere that I know is safe and reliable. So let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the ecosystems in Latin America, sure. the 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 startup ecosystems, the investing ecosystems. Um, how far along are these guys? What are they good at? Where are they lacking? What can we learn from them? Sure. So um, having looked at fintech in the U.S. and fintech in in Mexico specifically. Um, you really see there's a huge difference in where they're targeting themselves. So uh, one of the companies that we looked at this summer was called Senor Pago, and that is a company that is a mobile point-of-sale system. Um, And they are basically targeting these small to medium enterprises that generate maybe $1,000 a year, um, which is something that probably a startup in the U.S. would laugh at. Right. Um, but this is, like I said, this is 98% of the transactions that are happening in Mexico. Um, so just the structure of that company having to have the lower thresholds, having to deal with consumers potentially not trusting them right away, um, makes for a very different ecosystem. Um, I would say, having talked to a couple of these founders and worked with uh, this venture capital fund down there, these startups are every bit as sophisticated as they are in the U.S. They just face different challenges. So the regulatory environment, the um, sort of valuations especially are a really hot topic because the same company down there is going to get probably a fifth of the valuation that it would in Silicon Valley. And that's just the reality of, of the system. There's not as much money being put into venture capital. Is it because the business isn't as compelling or because there's not as much competition to it's, invest in those companies? So it's usually because they have Mexico as their market. 
um, right. a U.S. investor. So just as a caveat, there are a ton of U.S. investors in these markets. Okay. They are typically targeting like what we would – what we, meaning what the Mexican VCs would term like Series D, mezzanine, or even sort of towards the private equity spectrum. Right. Um, they're investing seven to ten million dollars, uh, and that's sort of for a lot of the VCs that operate within Mexico. That's like their exit opportunity. If you're investing in Series A and Series B, you're you're going from maybe five hundred thousand at the low end to three million, and so these international companies coming in and saying, okay, we're going to invest seven million in this company now that it's sort of tried and true. That's the exit opportunity for the Series A investor because they're saying, okay, well, we may not know how to take this to that level that Andreessen Horowitz or Bain Capital Ventures or KKR does. So all those players are down there. They're just they're only really getting involved when a company has sort of proven itself within that right. market, and then they want to internationalize it. Is usually what happens. Right. So what do you what do you think that we can learn? from these companies or these investors down there? Good question. Um, in terms of especially social impact, we have to learn to, to market these things to the target consumer. Right. Once, once, you're, once you have established what your company does, um, and if it's, if it's a social enterprise, awesome, you're probably targeting the base of the pyramid, which you have to understand what they want, um, how they're using, especially their, their phones, that's like the technology that they have. You have to be aware of how they're using it, um, what they want to use it for eventually, and potentially where that's going. Are most of these people on smartphones, or are they still on feature phones? Yeah, so good question, because the, uh, the Mexican government, an agency within the Mexican government produces this report every year about Internet use on phones, they are not specific about whether it is a smartphone or just an internet-connected phone. They're sort okay. of used interchangeably. Mm -hmm. So it can be a feature phone that has internet connection, but again, most of these, um, almost all of them are internet connected. It depends on what your plan is. Okay. So the vast majority of them are using sort of pay-as-you-go okay. versus the, the sort of upper class are using the, the contract. Okay. So you have to understand, like, you are fighting for, if, especially if you're one of these companies trying to get sort of like the phone credit to be used as payments for other things, you're fighting for that $20 or that 20 pesos that that person just put onto their phone, which they can use for a game. They can use for calling somebody. And if you're saying, no, you should use this for online banking or for, um, I don't know, making this transaction happen you have to make sure that you're sort of at the top of their priority list because otherwise that 20 pesos goes elsewhere. So how, how are these startups marketing to consumers? How are they acquiring users? Um, it, it depends on the startup. So most of the ones that I looked at were, again, going to these small and medium enterprises. Okay. And the way that they would market themselves is to essentially go, and I don't want to say using fear tactics, but going to <laughs> these uh, the small and medium businesses, especially mom and pop stores that sell just sort of your basic needs and saying, listen, this is where the market is going. You've seen everybody come in here using their cell phones for everything. The only thing they probably don't use it for is buying stuff from your store. If we give you this... Uh, who knows, this mobile point of sale system that costs you X, that gives you Y, and that puts you ahead of your competition, 
that's how you're going to stay in business. And so it's sort of, it's using, you know, this is the trajectory of your consumer. If you don't get on board now, you're going to have missed out and you're like, you're going to be replaced by a 7-Eleven or an Oxo. And so it hasn't necessarily dug its, its uh, teeth in yet, but I would say it's certainly making strides in that direction. So it was an exciting market to be working in over for the summer. Sure. For sure. And it's it's just my feeling was like it's so great to see these companies that understand their consumer so well because we would go under over our our industry briefs and say, OK, well, how does this um, especially at, at an impact investor, you always have to ask, how does this target the base of the pyramid consumer, okay. um, which means, you know, are we taking into account their income? how they spend, um, are they going to be able to sort of allocate money to this? And for some of the companies, they had an answer to every single one of these. And it was, you know, that's expected. But right. to see to see somebody targeting specifically these base of the pyramid consumers, which for us was the bottom 70% of, because the bottom 70% is making $6,000 or less a year. It's sort of, if you can make a difference in how that money is saved or spent, you are grasping onto this newly emerging middle class and you you've understood them so well that you will ride that to the top so and how, how far along do you think we are in that cycle you mentioned at the beginning there was a 10 percent shift in the yeah. number of consumers that are now banked where are we in the cycle here is it we, I, are we still in the early innings i would say yes i think that this is um in in my opinion fintech outside of sort of these mobile payment systems yep. um like in pesa or something similar um, those have sort of been, I don't want to say too saturated, but sort of the new stuff that's going to happen and really change things, it's just right at the beginning. We've all, we've all read the articles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it's, I, I think probably we've passed the first phase of like knowing this is important and knowing this is going to change the mm-hmm. ecosystem dramatically. Um, I think the next stage, and this is happening in a lot of developing markets, the banks are starting to catch on to this. And sort of saying to themselves, like, oh, crap, like, if we don't do something, we're gone. Right. And so I think it's just before that stage in Mexico well, and Latin America. That's very consistent with the conversations we had in Singapore last yeah. week. The bankers are really starting to figure it out. The most uh, popular panel that I saw was New Kids on the Blockchain. There were <laughs> a bunch of founders from distributed ledger yeah. blockchain startups. Adam Ludwig from Chain was there. Um Founder of Stellar was there, and yep. it was uh, they had they had the overflow seating was overflowing. Um, oh so blockchain is something that the bankers are paying attention to. Did you look at or work with any startups in the blockchain or distributed ledger space down there? Uh, not there, I th- and I think that's potentially because of uh, something I alluded to before that this is still people are still trying to find out where to put their money to begin with. The thought of like transferring their money into uh, Bitcoins or even just exchanging it for U.S. dollars is still very much on the back burner. No no one's trying to figure out how to buy lattes with Bitcoin yet? No, not quite. Okay. So, I mean, they have to get a Starbucks to show up in their (laughs) community first. But, yeah, it's it's, – I see it being – I see it ramping up a lot more quickly than it has in the developed world um, because – Again, these customers, one of their one of their key sticking points is trust. And so the blockchain essentially gives them this incredibly trustworthy source of storing their money. 
because there is nobody that's that's going to be able to touch it. Yeah. Um, so depending on the sophistication of the consumer in five, 10 years, I see that absolutely taking a hold down there. Cool. So to wrap things up, um, you know, a lot of our listeners are students. Um, <laughs> okay. So let's, let's try and um, provide them with some, with some wisdom. A lot of students, especially at Wharton, are interested in social impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of students are also interested in fintech. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure some of them, like you, are interested um, in, that in the intersection, right? What advice do you have for um, students or anybody, I suppose, that is really interested in this stuff? Um, they'll either want to get more knowledgeable or migrate into the space or have an impact. Um, you know, why don't you f- close us out with some advice sure. for those people? Um, so I think we, we talked about this quickly last year also. The way that I sort of term the intersection of fintech and social impact is financial inclusion. If you can set up a Google alert for that, your inbox will be flooded with all of the information you could potentially need. Um, depending on, I guess, what you want to be recruiting for, I decided very explicitly to recruit for impact investing. Um, And I think just based on where that industry is going, no matter where you go doing impact investing, you're going to be looking at a fintech deal. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I remember hearing this from students last year and sort of rolling my eyes, but you have to network your way into that. Um, Impact investors are not coming out to look for you. You have to make you have to educate yourself, and then as you sort of continue to network, your your conversations get more sophisticated. You really learn what you're looking for. Um, and so start having those conversations as soon as possible and, and know what you're talking about. So keep reading about what's going on in the space, new deals that are happening, et cetera. Um, the other piece of advice that I would have is don't be afraid to take an internship that is lower paying than the traditional one. Um, my internship this summer was unpaid and it was, I found the perfect job for myself. Um, Wharton has a ton of resources that you can use to sort of supplement no or low income. So if, if it's sort of, you're choosing between this high paying job and one that is low paying, but you think it's exactly what you want to do, go for that one. It's the last time in your life that you're going to be able to do that with no consequences. I'm so happy you, you were able to convey that sentiment without using the phrase, follow your passion. <laughs> well done. Well done. Um, all right. This was a lot of fun uh, talking fintech, talking social impact. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And for anybody else that wants to learn a little bit more about this, we do have a couple blog posts. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah wrote one and I wrote one, yeah. actually. So those are up on the Wharton Fintech blog. Um, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time.